Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. As the Deputy Minister of Culture and Human Development on my planet, I have been asked to prepare a report on the comedy of the place you call Earth. I have been told that what you call movies are a primary delivery system for this comedy. Yes, we have hilarious movies. Let me give you an example. Uh, two musicians accidentally witness the murder of seven criminals. Uh, they have to flee to avoid death, so they disguise themselves as women and join an all-female band. One of them falls in love with a beautiful singer, but you know can't reveal to her that he's a man. So they are both terrified and confused about their reproductive systems. Yeah. And this excites your laughter impulse? Very much. It's called Some Like It Hot. Let me tell you another one. Um, an arrogant man who predicts the weather becomes stuck in this time loop in which the same 24-hour cycle is repeated continuously. Yes, we have those. I can give you a small machine that breaks them. No, he has no such machine. He attempts to take his own life. He engages in mindless hedonism, anything really to end the deathless monotony of his plight. This is a popular comedy? Oh, yes. It's called Groundhog Day. People love it. Try one more on me. Okay. Oh, a paleontologist is trying to build the skeleton of an enormous dinosaur. He and the woman who loves him think they're in the company of a pet leopard, when in fact it's a very dangerous escaped circus leopard. At the end of the movie, she climbs up on a ladder and accidentally destroys four years of his work. You consider this to be funny? Bringing up baby? It, it's a classic. You people of Earth are very peculiar. I must leave now. Oh, wait, you've got to hear about the actor who can't find employment, and so he dresses as a woman, and he winds up badly hurting the feelings of pretty much everybody around him. You already told me about that one. No, 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 this is a different movie. It's called Tootsie. I absolutely have a warp shuttle to catch. Huh. Maybe it's the way I tell them. Today on The Scramble, writer Nicole Conlon realizes an ambition to see Monty Python in the flesh, and critic A.O. Scott addresses the lack of great comedies in this century. And now he actually does expect the Spanish Inquisition. Colin McEnroe. I do expect the Spanish Nobody expects the Spanish Inquisition except me. Uh, so we're going to be talking a lot about comedy today. It wasn't really our plan, but we don't plan The Scramble, our Monday show, any more than we have to. Uh, and so we weren't. We weren't expecting the Spanish Inquisition, and we weren't expecting to be talking a lot about comedy, but we will uh, because our super guest is Nicole Conlon. She's a Conlon. She's a writer, comedian, and associate producer at SI Extra Mustard. Uh, Actually, I should bring her right up on the board so we can even talk to her. She's a writer and comedian living in New York City. You can tweet her at, predictably enough, Nicole Conlon. And uh, you can also tweet us at WNBR Conlon as we go along here today. So we're going to talk to Nicole about a couple of things, but the first thing, and then uh, towards the end of the show, as was suggested, uh, A.O. Scott will join us to talk about why there's such a dearth of really, really great comic movies uh, here in the uh, 21st century. I would argue that 1998 was the last year that had really like a several, I mean, let's say even three or four memorable comedies that people will watch over and over again. But I can be talked out of that point of view. Nicole Conlon, um, 
let's begin by talking about Monty Python. You actually uh, made a trip, a special trip to London for the express and almost sole purpose uh, of seeing these heroes of yours who are all men in their 70s. Uh, I think Michael Palin and Eric Idle are the babies of the group. They're 71. Uh, my guess is you're not 71. Uh, no, I'm not. I'm 24. And and so um, I, I'm of the perfect age demographic to have embraced Monty Python. They they swept America for the first time between the years 1974 and 1976. I was, those were my, basically my se- junior and senior years in college when people were going wild for them. And, and I'm always a little surprised to find out how enduring their appeal is. So tell me why Monty Python is so important to you that you not only uh, made sure you got a ticket to one of their London live performances, but you also got a plane ticket. Uh, I mean... So many reasons. Uh, it's tough to know even where to start with that one. I, I would say that probably the the first moment that I kind of had my comedic awakening, if you will, uh, was when I saw the Dead Parrot sketch for the first time. Um, and you know, there's there's traces of Python in every every comedic exploit, practically every artistic exploit uh, since you know the 70s. Uh, they are uh, and forever will be kind of the founders of modern comedy uh, and and you know as any working comedian today will tell you they are they're the guys who started it all right let's go back to the dawn of your comedic awakening we'll play just a little bit of that famous dead parrot sketch hello miss what do you mean miss oh i'm sorry i have a cold i wish to make a complaint oh sorry uh we're closing for lunch never mind that my lad i wish to complain about this parrot what I purchased not half an hour ago from this very boutique. Oh, yes, sir, the Norwegian blue. What's wrong with it? I'll tell you what's wrong with it, my lad. It's dead. That's what's wrong with it. No, no, I see. It's resting. Look. Look, my lad, I know a dead parrot when I see one, and I'm looking at one right now. No, that's not dead. It's uh, resting. Resting? Yeah, resting. Remarkable bird, the Norwegian blue, isn't it? Beautiful plumage. The plumage don't enter into it. It's stone dead. Now it's resting. All right, then, if it's resting, I'll wake it up. Hello, Polly! I've got a nice fresh cuttlefish for you if you wake up, Mr. Polly Barrow! There he moved. No, he didn't. That was you pushing the cage. I didn't. Yes, you did. Hello, Polly! Wakey, wakey! Rise and shine! This is your nine o'clock alarm call! Now, that's what I call a dead parrot. All right. By the way, if you're listening out there and Monty Python was part of your uh, comedic awakening uh, at any age and at any point uh, during uh, the last however many years that was, 30, 40 years, give us a call, 860-275-7266, 860-275-7266. I think I prefer not to think about how many years it's been. Uh, WNPR column is a place to, to tweet us at, uh, and we're talking right now to Nicole Conlin about this. So uh, I guess, first of all, I want to ask you about the show. I mean, these are men in their 70s, and for me, I mean, having discovered them in 1975 or 1976, it is, when I see them now, a little bit like, you know, the rock stars that I grew up with when they perform at the, 
you know, at, at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame induction ceremonies or something, yeah. and they just seem a little little doddering. But I saw a picture from the show that you saw, I think, and uh, of the uh, Spanish Inquisition sketch, and, and and Terry Gilliam was actually airborne as he leapt onto the stage. So how hale and hearty are these uh, septuagenarians? Yeah, it's funny that you mentioned that, because my friend who I went with and I were talking after the show, and we, we both said Terry Gilliam is surprisingly spry for a man of his age, because he leapt out onto stage during that scene uh, uh, with such grace and dexterity uh, that I didn't expect from a, from a man that old. Nobody um, expects. The nobody Spanish. expects the healthy, <laughs> exuberant Spanish Inquisition. Um, yeah, they're, they're all, um, you know, just as sharp as they ever were. Uh, uh, you know, John Cleese in interviews before the show at the O2 happened, uh, said that they were going to, you know, it was essentially a greatest hit show. Mm-hmm. Um, they said that the only greatest hit they weren't going to play was going to be the Ministry of Silly Walks because uh, John Cleese has had a hip replacement and a knee replacement, <laughs> I think. Um, so, so aside from that, you know, everything is basically as it ever was. And, you know, that's a sort of amazing thing. I'm trying to think if there's there may be a parallel to it that I'm not uh, reaching in my also aging mind um, of a group of comedians who can kind of do this. In other words, we're quite familiar, once again, with rock bands who who can tour and basically play their hits uh, and everybody loves it. Um, for the most part, comedians are under pressure to come up with new material. If you're a stand-up, an individual stand-up, Chris Rock and Louis C.K., I mean, they have to get rid of their of their set and build an entire new set every time they want to tour or do anything new. Um, I'm not sure. I, can you think of anybody else who can just do this, who can come out and do these routines that date back to the 70s and 80s? You know, I... I can't think of any off the top of my head. I'm sure, you know, maybe if I, you, you know, if you wanted to go way back in time, uh, if they were still alive, then you could get, you know, Abbott and Costello, maybe something like that. Or the Marx Brothers, yeah. Um, but, um, you know, as far as, as you know, comedy routines or, or stand-up specials that people will, you know, sing along with, if you will, uh, you know, Python is really the only name that comes to mind right now. I think another thing that they've done that was very, very smart. I mean, this is a group of people who, um, although they haven't written and performed a lot of new new material as a group, obviously they've gone on to have individually very interesting careers and have done very interesting and, and difficult to foresee things with the talent that they have. But one thing that they did seem to decide as a group and, and were very smart about was the onset of the Internet. Um, and, and whereas they they could have understood their work to be this stuff that they really needed to protect in order to keep it, you know, as fresh as possible anyway for occasions just like the one that you saw them uh, perform at. They, instead, they really, they, they've kind of allowed their material to live on the Internet. One of the first sort of old, old school creative artists to realize, oh, no, this could be a good thing for us. Just let everybody mess around with it in any way they want to. Yeah, well, I mean, if you talk about Python in any sort of academic context, um, which I know the members themselves don't necessarily like to do, uh, then the first thing that comes up is how, you know, anti-establishment, how anti-authoritarian they were as a group. And that was sort of the underpinning of their entire comedy. Um, And if you, you know, kind of go back, uh, if you read uh, Michael Palin's diaries um, from the Python years, uh, then you know, there sort of emerges this contentious relationship with the BBC who did in many ways allow them great freedom, but also 
we're an incredibly stifling organization. So in a way, I would say that embracing the Internet is partially kind of still their attempt to stick it to the man and say, you know, why should, why should the BBC, why should ITV hold all of the rights to the shows that we have created when we really did it to make people laugh and, and to kind of uh, mock the very institutions who would prevent the sketches from going online in the first place. It is true that this is a group that put out, uh, they, they put out a long series of LPs, um, and one of them was called the Contractual Obligation uh, LP. They just sort of flat out said why they were having to do this. Uh, and, and even in the movies, of course, they would complain within the context of the movie. I mean, Monty Python and the Holy Grail is full of all kinds of complaints about things being too expensive and uh, and, and people having to be sacked because they were doing the credits the wrong way. Or, yeah. Um, and so, yeah, the, the, the difficulty of dealing with whatever structure they're up against uh, becomes part of their, their fun. Uh, here's a Peter calling from Mansfield. Hi, Peter. You're on the air. Hi. Um, I just wanted to say that uh, I also discovered uh, Monty Python in the middle 70s when I was in college. And I invited a British faculty member over to my house and because I was so excited about Monty Python, and we watched some episodes, and he said that he wasn't that impressed. It reminded him reminded him of uh, British music hall comedy that he had seen as a child, and uh, you know it's kind of deflating in a way. But uh, <laughs> uh, he, you know, I, I've always wondered whether that was whether he was typical, uh, or you know whether Americans were more impressed with Monty Python than British. So that's my question. Well, I have an answer to that question, but before uh, I give my own two cents for whatever they're worth, uh, Nicole Conlin, first of all, maybe you can just tell us a little bit about the venue in London where you saw Monty Python and, and who appeared to be there. Sure. Um, I mean, the O2 is, is uh, it's a huge stadium. It's essentially Madison Square Garden. Uh, you know, it's that size. Um, it, it was a huge, huge production value um, piece Clearly, Eric Idle's fingerprints were all over it. It was very much, it was kind of more reminiscent of Spamalot than a proper live sketch show. Um, but, um, you know, tons of celebrities were there. Mick Jagger did um, kind of a, a promo video for it. Um, Stephen Fry has been in pictures backstage. Um, you know, it, it's a huge event. It is, you know, as if, you know, the it, it, it was the Rolling Stones farewell, farewell tour of comedy. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I, one thing that I would say, just in response to what Peter brought up, uh, certainly at the time that they were introduced to America, the absolutely, the most inflammable uh, Monty Python fan, the, the Monty Python fan who was uh, who would take to it like a duck to water, was the American Anglophile. And, and you know, I mean, Brits obviously thought they were funny. They were a huge success, success in Britain, notwithstanding the, the, uh, the grumpy professor that, that Peter uh, played this material for. Uh, they had big fans there. But nobody loved them the way the American Anglophile did. They, they sort of had everything. And, and it was a real double-barreled experience for America. It was, on the one hand, I mean, these guys are comedy geniuses by any measure. And then they were also giving America a huge dose of Britishness, which America always has this kind of love-hate relationship. But it's pretty easy to get Americans to love something British because, you know, despite the rebellion, despite everything, our culture, a lot of so much of our culture, our fairy tales, our music, all, so many things come from there. That And so there was a, you know, a natural fit, I think, there, too. And I'm assuming that's still the case. I mean, for first of all, how unusual are you as a 24-year-old um, a Monty Python fan. Are there a lot of other people from your generation around you who completely understand why you spent all that money? 
Yes, absolutely. I, I mean, you know, I do, I do come from sort of a, you know, upper middle class white uh, academic bubble. So, of course, I'm going to find people who share similar interests. Um, but I don't know a single person who, you know, doesn't know all the words to the Lumberjack song. Uh, well, with that in mind, let's play a little bit of the Lumberjack song. I'm a lumberjack and I'm okay. I sleep all night. I work all day. He's a lumberjack and he's okay. Of course he all night and he works all day. I cut down trees. I eat my lunch. I go to the lavatory. <laughs> On Wednesdays I go shopping and have buttered scones for tea. I cut down trees, I skip and jump, I like to press wildflowers. I put on women's clothing and hang around in bars. Suspendies and a bra. I wish I'd been a girly, just like my dear mama. I cut down trees when I heal. Suspendies and a bra. I wish I'd been a girly, just like my dear mama. All right, I've heard that thing like 400 times, and I was still laughing. And, and, and Nicole Conlon, that's another aspect of this. This is a, a type of comedy, um, I think, be, for a whole bunch of different reasons, that re- it rewards m- more than most comedy, I think. Repeated listenings, repeated watchings, repeated visits to it. Uh, when I saw that article in the New York Times and this picture uh, of Terry Gilliam and the other two cardinals from the Spanish Inquisition, and Terry Gilliam is kind of grabbing air uh, as he gets out on stage, I immediately... Uh, popped open YouTube and replayed the Spanish Inquisition, which I, I really have watched probably a hundred times. And, and yet it's built out of this completely strange conceit, as so many of these things are, of these three cardinals from the Spanish Inquisition who can't really get down to business because they have this little spiel that one of them's trying to say that he can't quite say correctly. There's always one more thing he adds to it, he, and then he backtracks. He says, oh, I'll come in and again. I'll start over. And, there, and there's something so completely hilarious about this that and something about the I don't know what it is. Do you have a theory about why it is that we watch these things over and over? Well, actually, it's interesting that you bring that up because there is a uh, shoot. I wish I had it in front of me. There's a quote from I think Terry Jones, um, who uh, you know was talking about this phenomenon of people watching over and over again, uh, and he talks about how it relates to Python's writing process mm-hmm. um, because the you know they unlike a lot of comedy groups today. Python was sort of each each member or writing team was picked from the BBC and then put together and been like, you guys are funny, you can do whatever you want. Um, so rather than kind of write things as a group, um, they would write, uh, uh, you know, Graham Chapman and John Cleese would write together, Michael Palin and Terry Jones would write together, uh, Terry Gilliam would do his animations, and then Eric Idle kind of wrote on his own. Um, so, you know, one writing team or one individual would bring a sketch to the table uh, and then if it was funny, it stayed. And then the only real rule was, you know, if something was funny, they would keep it in or they would add it in. So they would pitch different jokes 
you know, people might like the structure of a sketch, and then other people would add different jokes, uh, and then there would be another layer in performance, and then somebody would say, why don't we put something funny on the wall? So, um, you know, watching it over and over again, you know, each sketch is so dense, and there's so much going on, and so many different things make you laugh that you have to rewatch it over and over again. And as Terry Jones said, when you watch it that many times, there's still more to discover, because after you've watched it 400 times, then eventually you're going to say, oh, hey, I never noticed that thing on the wall. Exactly. You know? there, there is, there's a lot of density. We're getting tweets. Uh, John tweets, I was a little too old for Sesame Street. So Python was the first PBS program that, for me, was appointment viewing. Uh, and Betsy, uh, not Betsy, so why not, tweets, read, uh, read in The Guardian recently that Michael Palin doesn't think Python was that funny. He's wrong. That, I think that's sort of just a Python-ish thing to say at this point. I, I'm, I'm not sure that Michael Palin really thinks that. <laughs> right. Um, although John Cleese said that Michael Palin was, he thought, in many respects, Palin was the funniest of the Pythons in the sense that he could come up with comedy that wasn't grounded in anything. It didn't, it, it didn't have a point of reference from which it departed. It didn't have some kind of latent assumption that we all understood. Uh, he, he, he brings up things like the herring, herring slapping dance where, where people sort of hit each other with fish for no reason. Uh, and one of them winds up in, in, in the, the, the Thames, I think, at the end uh, as an example of something that could be just sort of completely funny on uh, all its own. Hey, let's take one more call from Walter, and then we have to uh, move on to our next topic. Here's Walter in Agawam. Hi, Walter. Hi, Colin. Love the show. Uh, just wanted to uh, jump in here. Uh, back in the, in the mid-'70s, as Python mania swept the country, I was working at a university in New York City, and took part as an actor, as a performer, in a highly unauthorized evening of Monty Python sketches, offering up my gammy leg in the lifeboat, nudge, nudge, wink, wink, and so forth. But I was well-primed for the Pythons because I'd been listening for many years to The Goon Show over a local New York radio station. Yes. And uh, I, I believe the Pythons themselves give credit to The oh, Goons yes, for, uh, for setting up their style of comedy. That and, and Beyond the Fringe, I would also think, Nicole. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, well, thanks for that reminiscence, uh, Walter. Hey, we have to sort of pause here uh, and uh, park uh, Monty Python someplace else. We're going to come back with a, for a quick conversation with uh, Nicole about another aspect of her career. I bet you they won't play this song on the radio. I bet you they won't play this new song. It's not that it's all controversial, just that the... Words are awfully strong. All right, welcome back. This is The Scramble, our Monday show, uh, and our super guest right now, Nicole Conlon. She's a writer, comedian, and associate producer at SI Extra Mustard. We're going to explain that to you in just a second. Uh, writer and comedian living in New York City. So, first of all, before we uh, talk about uh, World Cup soccer, uh, Nicole Conlon, tell us about SI Extra Mustard. What exactly is that? Uh, so Sports Illustrated Extra Mustard is um, our kind of culture and humor blog. You know, anything that doesn't fall under the label of regular sports but is still sports-related is stuff that we handle. So, for example, we wouldn't report on stats or scores, but if an athlete wears a funny hat, we might do a story about that. Right, so Tim Howard's uh, uh, repulsion of someone trying to, a stranger trying to hug him at the airport is uh, a leading item uh, up there right now. Uh, speaking of Tim Howard is to speak of the World Cup. Um, and, you know, once again, you and I are of very different ages and generations. Uh, but, you know, it, it has been a shock, a pleasant shock to me uh, to see the way uh, the U.S. has embraced the World Cup this time around. One, one of your jobs there uh, for Extra Mustard was to sort of get everybody ready for this, which turned out to be very important. So you had to put together 
together, uh, I think, what was called an idiot's guide uh, to the World Cup. Um, and, and I take it that you came to this uh, with, in the proper state of mind, that of uh, only semi-informed soccer consumer kind of getting ready to get everybody else ready. Uh, yeah, exactly. It's the the premise of the piece is a World Cup guide for people who don't watch soccer, and I fall under that category. So there was a lot of research involved for me. And I, well, for you, I mean, obviously, it's been it's been as I said, kind of exciting just to watch people get as involved as they are. Were there particular things that you learned or that, that intrigued you or that pleased you to know? Yeah, I, I mean, I think that you know where this conversation that we're having now is is leading is sort of why soccer hasn't been more popular. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I think that one of the things that Americans don't necessarily understand about soccer is, um, you know, there's all these complaints about soccer being a very slow game and a very low-scoring game, and sometimes it ends in a tie, and what's the point of that? Um, But, you know, the World Cup is, you know, sort of the exemplification of needing to stick around for the entire thing. Uh, You know, the, the... stories of the World Cup of each team isn't so much in the individual matches, but in the arc of the entire World Cup. Uh, I, I have previously compared it to, you know, watching an entire season of Breaking Bad as opposed to, you know, sitting down and watching a standalone episode of Law and Order. It's, it's you know, a very long, committed thing. Um, but you're following a much more interesting story over a longer period of time. I think that's uh, that's a great perception, and and I think you could uh, you're talking about watching the entire arc of the World Cup and the games, but you can also apply that to to the individual game. Let's face it, you can watch three or four innings of a baseball game. You can watch the last 15 minutes of an NBA game. Uh, you can jump in and out of a football game, um, and 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 derive a certain amount of satisfaction from them. And some people might suggest that everything I just described is a better form of time management than actually watching the entire games. Certainly the case with an NBA game anyway. But there's <laughs> there's something about these these games which I mean really if you don't watch the whole thing, you kind of don't get it. I mean it really there's there's some story that's being told on the field, not only in terms of the overall arc that you talked about before, but within the ind- individual game, there's a narrative that you miss if if you just, you know, try to sample a few minutes of it. Yeah, very much so. Um, and, and I just wonder how much of a challenge that is to American fans. I mean, we like everything fast. I mean, is is our temperamental objection to this kind of thing being resolved at all this time around? You know, I, I you know, I, I hate to bring this back to television again, but I do academically academically come from a film and television background. So I think of the world in terms of stories. And I genuinely think that as we have kind of grown up, as a nation with um, kind of more long-form narrative stories, not just with television, with shows like Breaking Bad over multiple seasons, but also, I mean, think Game of Thrones, think huge long books, think long storylines just in general that have carried out in the public eye. You know, we're more adept at, you know, picking up on little details and, and seeing kind of a longer narrative arc in something like, soccer, both in a single match and over, you know, the entire tournament. It's, uh, again, a very interesting idea. And, of course, there are these uh, sort of diffuse two of your loves, British comedy uh, and sports, these two guys I'm sure you've seen it, the the men in blazers, who are constantly, in fact, drawing parallels between Game of Thrones uh, and uh, and what's going on in the soccer field and uh, calling Miguel Herrera the Mexican coach, uh, Mexican Hodor and uh, and all that kind of thing. But I, I like that idea that our maybe our 
our mindset is being uh, changed a little bit. Well, you, you were, I think, a stu- am I correct that you were a student of John Sexton, the, um, the president of NYU, who wrote the book about uh, baseball as a road to God? You are absolutely correct. And so, uh, you know, he does make this argument that there's something about the, the pace and structure of, of baseball that lends itself to a certain kind of, uh, of meditative appreciation and maybe uh, understanding of, of grace, but also an understanding of suffering. Um, are you seeing any parallels uh, now as you get more acquainted as a fan uh, and, and somebody in the media with World Cup soccer? Uh, yeah, absolutely. So... Uh, you know, I guess I, I should give a little bit of background. Um, you know, I was in this course called Baseball as a Road to God, which was taught by NYU President John Sexton, who has a book that he just released, I think, this year uh, of the same name. Um, and, and the premise of the course and of the book is to draw parallels between the function of religion and society and the function of uh, baseball, but we can expand to sports in general. Um, and so one of the one of the points that we touched on in class was that um, you know a religion is defined by sacred time and sacred space that are separate from um, secular time and secular space that we occupy in real life. And so in the world of baseball, we're looking at time. Uh, you know, we're looking at a game without a clock. So the time is is you know determined by innings, um, which means that a you know a game could go on forever. Uh, and in one book, uh, the Universal Baseball Association, um, it does. Uh, uh, you know, time is relative, and, and time in a sacred space is different than time in our real lives. And if you look at something like a soccer match, then you have you know a 90-minute game, but then you also have stoppage time or added time, which tacks on to the end of the game. So the idea of time in soccer is different than the idea of time in you know real life, uh, uh, and that you know kind of separates it from the reality of the world that we live in every day. Um, you get extra points for uh, mentioning the obscure Robert Coover novel that you just uh, uh, mentioned, the Universal Baseball Association, J. Henry Waugh, proprietor, I think is its entire name. Thank you. <laughs> what, a, what a great book. Uh, well, listen, you get to uh, advance to the next round, Nicole Conlin, uh, and we're going to take a quick break. Thank you for joining us. When we come back, uh, A.O. Scott, film critic for The New York Times, uh, and I are going to talk about why the 21st century doesn't seem to have quite so many great, enduring comic movies. How many people have rented This Is Spinal Tap right before having a spinal tap? There's so little useful medical information in there. Today's show was produced by Betsy Kaplan and me with help from our interns Katie Pikus and Lily Tyson. The part of Bill Curry was played by John Cleese. Greg Hill appeared in our intro and tweets for us at WNPR Colin. For show pages, articles, and Faith Middleton show staff recipes for Crunchy Frog, visit our website, WNPR.org. On tomorrow's show, we revisit our conversation with the great Philippe Petit. And now, back to Colin. Yeah, some of you may remember that earlier this year, Philippe Petit and I sat down in parallel radio studios and talked for the entire show 
about his uh, thinking about creativity. And of course, it is 40 years since he wire walked between the twin towers of the World Trade Center. So uh, we like that show so much. We're going to put it on for you again tomorrow. Uh, meanwhile, uh, earlier this year, A.O. Scott, every once in a while, a critic writes something where you just you just you flag it mentally. Right. You, you think, OK, I've never heard anybody say that so well about something that I've been thinking about. So he's reviewing uh, the uh, the movie The Neighbors, uh, and uh, Seth Rogen and Rose Byrne have uh, had a fight about who in the marriage gets to be the irresponsible one. And Tony Scott writes, The scene nonetheless marks a significant point in the evolution of what French critics who take matters very, take, take such matters very seriously have called le nouvel âge d'or, de la comédie américaine. The central problem in American film comedy for the last 15 years or so, let's say from middle period Sandler through prime Apatow and late Hangover, has been maturity, or more precisely, its avoidance. In the old days, adulthood was a fact. Now it's a vague, unproven theory. Adolescents used to represent constraint and frustration to be left behind as quickly as possible. For the heroes of the new American comedy, it represents a blissful state of hedonistic freedom to be held onto for as long as possible. I had specially boldfaced in the old days, adulthood was a fact. Now it's a vague, unproven theory. So, um, A.O. Scott, we invited you on to talk a little bit uh, specifically about an article that says that, that there aren't as many good comedies um, for, uh, these days, partly because of foreign distribution issues. And we'll come to that. But could could we begin with sort of an an aesthetic discussion of this? Um, You know, when when I read that review of yours, I thought, this explains to me why I don't like very many comedies (laughs) here in the 21st century. Is that your reaction to, or am I just an old fart who doesn't understand why this genre, this new uh, American golden age uh, is so great? Well, I, I mean, I have mixed feelings about it, you know, because I actually do enjoy a lot of these comedies, these kind of regressive, childish, um, you know, won't grow up, uh, thumb in the eye comedies. And then I feel a little ashamed of myself for, for having such a good time, um, which may be exactly the, the condition that I was trying to um, diagnose, because I, I, I think it's, um, it's, it's, it's fascinating just how this, theme in a way has has emerged and has spread in american comedy of um the problem of growing up whether and how and why um you would even bother to and and how many um and 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 what's interesting too is how this is mutated from a a mostly male i mean if you think about the adam sandler movies of the late 90s um you know billy madison uh do i have to um, Sorry. Do I have to think about them? <laughs> no, well, for analytical purposes. Okay. Um, <laughs> you know, they're 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 about this sort of like uh, basically a you know a, a boy um, acting out um, in rebellion against the the sort of the the hypocrisy and the stuffiness and the, and the boringness of the adult world. And and for a long time that was and through a lot of the Apatow comedies that was a sort of a a male problem and a male privilege how how to avoid growing up how to um, somehow square the in- encroaching inevitability of some kind of more responsible way of living with your desire to do whatever you want and hang out with your friends and, and smoke weed and crack jokes and be stupid. Um, and what we've witnessed recently, and, and Neighbors is an example of it, and, and there are some other recent examples too, mostly more on television, I think, than in movies, um, which is something we can get to um, is that it's 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 not just a male prerogative. It's uh, there's this great show on Comedy Central um, 
called Broad City uh, mm-hmm. with Abby Jacobson and Alana Glazer playing two young women who are acting the way that the the the, the dudes in the Apatow comedies uh, always did, you know, just completely sort of irresponsible, hedonistic, um, refusing uh, to grant the theory that you have to be a grown-up and be responsible, any kind of um, any kind of credence. Um, and I think, you know, it's not an accident that this is a big theme in in comedies. Comedies, I, I would think comedy is, is, a, is a genre where a lot of anxieties get worked out um, or mm-hmm. displaced about, um, in particular, about how we're supposed to behave mm-hmm. um, in, in, in everyday life. So if you look, you know, at the great comedies, the screwball comedies, let's say, of the... Uh, of the studio era, um, the problem of marriage, um, who you're going to marry and how you're going to behave once you're married, um, which is a problem of adulthood, of, of, of maturity, and also of, in those days, at least in the movies, of the sort of the, the availability of, of sex, that's, that's the big issue. Um, and it's kind of, it's not an accident that it's shifted now to, to how are you going to grow up and what is that going to mean? Um, at a time when, you know, in the real world, uh, it's, it's, it's a very open question. You know, there, there are all kinds of stories all the time about, um, you know, kids moving home back in with their parents after college, um, and sometimes that's uh, ascribed to, to economic difficulties and sometimes to just sort of um, laziness and lack of ambition. But uh, I would say that, that, you know, one of the problems that um, that the younger generation faces, and that middle-aged people also sometimes face, is what does it mean um, to be uh, to be a grown-up, to be mature, and why should we ever bother with it? You know, I, let me just pursue my own declinist uh, argument for for a second here, and you can uh, go ahead. Uh, and I, I would just observe. I did a little. I pulled it together. I may have cherry picked some things here, uh, but um, so okay. So for about a two year period from 1982 to 1984, the, the following movies came out: Tootsie, Trading Places, This Is Spinal Tap, the somewhat overlooked Steve Martin Lily Tomlin movie All of Me, and, and Ghostbusters. Yeah. Um, and and you know these are all. Very, very, very funny movies, um, and they're all pretty different movies too. I mean, and they they exploit different kinds of comic tropes. Um, they um, and, and they're diverse. They're about people doing very different kinds of things. Mm-hmm. And I feel as though with some of the movies, the so-called comedies of of the 21st century, I'm kind of seeing the guys from Animal House like over and over and over yeah. again. They're, I just feel like I'm not seeing that kind of diversity. Nor do I think. I mean, if any of the movies that I just you know, mentioned was sort of on a, on tele, on a television in a room I was walking through, I'd sit down and watch 30 minutes of it. Yeah. And I don't know if, I, if I'm going to feel that way about movies from the 21st century. Well, I, I think you make a very good point because I, I think that, and, and, you, and you've put your finger on, you know, what, how, how the audience or the, or the perception of the audience um, has changed. And, and, you know, one thing that has been... Uh, a, a truism um, for probably 15 or 20 years is that young males drive the domestic box office, um, and the 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 skewing um, male and the skewing you know downward in um, age or at least in in maturity or, or, or perceived age of 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 comedies um, does does uh, have a lot to do. With that, with that, you know, that's where the audience has been perceived to be. That's where the money has been perceived to be. So it's only, you know, a few years, fairly recently, that 
um, a movie like Bridesmaids came along, and which is, I think, a pretty good movie. I don't think it's a great, great movie, but I think it's a it's a quite good comedy. But it kind of was hailed as this revolutionary thing because wow, there's a, you know it's about women and women can be funny, which you know. To, to claim that as a discovery means you have to forget about, yes, Lily Tomlin and um, Lucille Ball and Claudette Colbert and, and, any num- and Goldie Hawn and, and Diane Keaton and any number of, um, of formidably funny um, actresses uh, from the past. Um, but it, it, it's, it's, it's tricky, yes, to, to sort of to go back and, um, and, and, and cherry pick or to say that there's been a kind of um, overall coarsening um of 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 comedy on film because i you know when i think back to my own um formative years i mean the movie for me that really kind of um opened my eyes to to how funny a movie could be was was probably blazing saddles um and which which is certainly you know um works on a very as it were, gut level, um, and in a very regressive way, uh, a lot of the time. In addition to being, you know, about a lot of other um, interesting things and being a, a, a great send-up of westerns and of, of American racial hang-ups, um, and and so on. So, you know, I, I, for for me, like the great comic demigod of my youth was probably Mel Mel Brooks, and I think that, you know, that that Judd Apatow and Adam Sandler at their best do follow in the line of. Uh, of, of of Mel Brooks of that kind of um, very sort of like crude and low lowbrow but also quite knowing and intelligent uh, humor. Well, you and I are one movie away from each other because I think the funniest movie ever made was The Producers, which was made in in 1968. And, yeah. and now we, I do feel as though there were a group of people, many of them worked together on your show of shows, yeah. the old uh, Sid Caesar vehicle, who came out of this, a generation of, of people who really knew how to write and direct comedy, how to find beats uh, in, in a joke. And, you know, you, you think of the impact that Carl Reiner and his son Rob Reiner uh, have had uh, on comic movies, how many really good comic movies that they've been involved in and and yes mel brooks and then obviously woody allen was part of that staff as well and and you i also think about steve martin in that great period in the 1980s where he was making roxanne and planes trains and automobiles and dirty rotten scoundrels you know he was working with really great directors also i think fred shabisi is the director of um of roxanne uh you know these were terrific movies in, in a lot of different ways and i wonder if the the level of writing and direction uh, I guess I promise this will be my final declinist question. Is if there's anything that really mirrors that? If the school oh, I, that I think yeah. that completely is, but I just think it's not always in feature films, or it doesn't show its best in feature films. Um, because I think that you know the 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 the, the Judd Apatow, Paul Feig um, kind of uh, constellation. Um, I mean, if you think about. Freaks and Geeks, an amazing show. If you think about that show, you know, which was which, or or, um, or the Larry Sanders show, mm-hmm. you know, these 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 kind of early groundbreaking, underappreciated at the time, sort of breakthrough television comedies, and how much they spawned. So you know, Arrested Development being another um, great example. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you know, you go over to some of the the later Saturday Night Live derived um, stuff. Again, you know, less. The, the the movies um, like like say the you know the first Anchorman movie or, or all of those kind of uh, spoofy Will Will Ferrell movies which which at their best are pretty funny but you know you look at a show like Thirty Rock I mean I think that the 
the the level of the of the of the writing and the timing mm-hmm. and the and both the sort of the technical and topical sophistication of of that show um, is working at a very very high level. I think the same thing is true of of Community or Parks and Recreation. Or if you go over to cable, again there there there's there's quite a lot um, that's happening. I mean, some of it is is not necessarily designed for the sensibilities of of old timers like you and me, but uh, a show like Bob's Burgers, um, which is an animated uh, uh, show on on TV, has has and and um, Children's Hospital and Workaholics and and as I said, Broad City. Um, a lot of the the people involved in these shows, um, you know, work together, know each other, come out of um, out of similar improv groups, you know, especially uh, Upright Citizens Brigade. Mm-hmm. Um, in, in in L.A. and then in New York, um, which has, has just, you know, been a great spawning ground for comedy. I think that it doesn't always translate, doesn't always make it to the feature film level and isn't always best showcased in feature film. So that that might be a big difference. I mean, when you and I were growing up, um, TV was a lot more limited. There was less of it, and it was much more restricted. Um, and there was a lot more freedom and daring and possibility in movies. And I think that in many ways right now the situation is reversed. Yeah, I, and I, just even the fact that you're able to rattle off all these names, uh, you know, um, film critics, you really have to know television now, I think, in a way that a film critic in the 70s and 80s uh, didn't necessarily have to. Yeah. Have to. Um, it, and I would also add to everything you just said, The Simpsons, which I think also oh, has totally, had this yeah. an enormous uh, impact uh, impact on all this. You know, so one of the one of the reasons, one of our first motivations for bringing this all up was this uh, thing that we saw uh, on, on the Atlantic website saying, well, part of the problem also is that these movies have to do well overseas these yeah. days or, or they just don't make budget. And it's easier to do that with an action movie than to hope that everybody in China thinks that, that, that a comedy is funny. Uh, do you buy that argument? I think there's a lot to that argument. I mean, I, I, I think that, you know, comedy is um, often a very culturally specific thing. It's a, it's a, it's a, a, a mode that doesn't translate very well. Um, and, you know, I mean, there, there, there are some uh, exceptions, um, obviously, but, uh, you know, a lot of times what one culture finds uproariously funny and another will find offensive or just strange and inexplicable. Um, also, comedy is often a very verbal form. I mean, there's a lot of verbal jokes. There are, there are always some, you know, some sight gags and there's some physical humor, but, um, you know, but, it, but it, it's based on, on dialogue and on specific references in a way that um, global audiences might not get. Also, American comedy, to go back to the first point in a way, tends to be um, crude and scatological and sexual um, in in ways that 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 other countries and 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 the censors you know that work for the governments of those countries that many times have the the power to uh, to permit movies to be shown or or not um, are, are you know it's gonna it's gonna run against some of those local sensitivities so um, the the even though comedy tends to be a lot cheaper to make um, the the economics of, of of global distribution and, and, and global mass audiences um, makes it less of a financial bet than a big action movie, you know, something like the, the Transformers movie or, or Godzilla or, you know, the X-Men, all of, all of these big action um, movies that, that are seem to be more and more the thing that the big American studios um, 
know how to make and know how to sell. Um, uh, Nicole Conlon, the guest who preceded you, A.O. Scott, is now tweeting, no, what about Mean Girls? What about Zoolander? What about, uh, she's not agreeing with me at all. About uh, uh, What about uh, the wedding singer Anchorman, Napoleon Dynamite, Best in Show, World's End? Uh, I, I would give you some of those, but not all of those. Very quickly, because we're running out of time, I was trying to think about what makes me laugh these days. And you're absolutely right about 30 Rock. I, I will... You know, I will take a back seat to no man in my admiration for 30 Rock. And it does seem that some of the really great writing has also moved over to The Daily Show, to Stephen Colbert, to John Oliver, that some of the hottest, funniest writers seem to be working on those shows right now. I don't know how well that's ever going to translate into movies. Well, it, it doesn't for a few reasons. I mean, I, I think that, that um, part of it is just that the, the short form, you know, the, the, the sketch and, and, and the gag, there's a lot less pressure. I find that most feature-length comedies, and I love all of those ones that uh, your previous guest has listed, listed, but a lot of them feel long at 90 minutes and feel like, you know, extended um, television sketches. And, and to blow that into 90 minutes, um, you know, to, to, to take the, 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 the brilliant and endlessly funny Key and peel sketches about uh, the two valets who were obsessed with Liam Neeson or Obama's anger translator. I mean, there, there's not a 90-minute you know, movie with a three-act structure and a redemptive ending that you could make out of those. A, a, a lot of the thing, too, about the, the satirical shows like John Oliver and Stephen Colbert and, and, and The Daily Show is that they're so topical. You know, mm. the jokes are hilariously funny and, and brilliantly incisive today. Right. Um, I mean, I've, I've sometimes come back after a few days or after vacation and, and you know, watched on, on DVR um, old Colberts that are like a week old, and they're just never as funny. Um, and a year from now, which is about the time it would take to, to greenlight and write and make a feature film, no one would even understand. You know, there, there could be a, a brilliant Marco Rubio joke um, <laughs> that Stephen Colbert makes tonight. Um, a year from now, no one will have any idea what he's talking about. Absolutely. So, hey, we're going to have to say goodbye. And we're so grateful to A.O. Scott from The New York Times to, for joining us today. Oh, fun. And I had a great time, too. I'll, le- I'll leave you with one thought, though. In 1966, Norman Jewison made the movie The Russians Are Coming, The Russians Are Coming, which is a very funny movie. And it was about the Cold War yeah. at a time when, you know, really sort of imputing good motives and friendly temperaments to Russians was not all that cool. And, um, you know, it's sort of a political statement. So maybe one of those Daily Show writers will give us something that good. Thank you so much for joining us today. It's been my pleasure. Okay, bye-bye. And we'll be uh, back tomorrow. Well, actually, I won't be back tomorrow, but you'll get to listen to the Philippe Petit thing, which is really great. Thanks to Betsy Kaplan and Kion Wolf. I cut down trees, I skip and jump, I like to press wild flowers, I put on women's clothing and hang around in bars. These are things that I do. That's not even funny. Well, Kion, it's sung by a man. That's why it's funny. Oh, now you're saying that men are funnier than women? Ugh. <sighs>